Hi there, and welcome to your health toolkit. My name is Dr. Lauren Young, and I'm so excited to introduce this podcast to you. I'm a naturopathic physician, and I work with a team of physicians that have practices across Connecticut. I've been practicing for 15 years, and my patients really run the gamut in terms of their health goals. We see people from wellness to a sudden onset of a condition that they're really concerned about, from Parkinson's to autoimmune and oncology. And the one thing I would say that all our patients have in common is they really want to be in charge of their health and they want to understand their bodies. More than anything, my team is really passionate about educating our patients in integrative medicine, and we really want to share our knowledge, tools, and experience here with you on the show. Welcome to Your Health Toolkit. This is Dr. Lauren Young, and I'm really excited about the show we're going to have today, guys. Oh, boy, oh, boy. So... um, We all talk about our bodies with our doctors, and it feels a little awkward, Um, and even, you know, talking with our loved ones around things, talking about bodies feels weird. So today we're going to up the ante a little bit, and we're going to talk about sex. Um, So I have Dr. Anthony Pascucci and Dr. Mary Tracy with me today. Both are awesome naturopathic physicians uh, at Collaborative Natural Health Partners who... um, talk about libido and sex with their patients on a regular basis. So we're excited to dive into this topic and address some myths and, um, and, you know, dive into some reasons why your sex drive may be shifting and go from there. Thank you so much, Dr. Tracy, Dr. Pascucci. Thank you for having us. Thank you. (laughs) So let's talk about sex drive. Like what are factors that impact someone's interest in sex? Sure. So I think it's just like an overall reflection of health in general. Um, And so there's a lot of things that we got to like dive into when we talk about like sex drive. It's it's actually very complex. And so that could range from like hormonal fluctuations and changes, nutritional factors and deficiencies, stress, um, any type of pain your body might be going through, body image, the beliefs and values and the culture that we have around sex, um, mental wellness, uh, if there's any history of trauma, um, certainly things like medication use and relationship or partner issues could be factors as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like what you said about it being an ov- uh, a marker of overall health. You know, our sexual health is going to suffer if we're otherwise unhealthy, and vice versa to a degree. Um, it's about finding like a good good balance. Uh, you know, balancing your health, uh, and, th- and that could look different for for men and women. But I guess we'll say up top too. A lot of what we talk about might be somewhat geared towards heteronormative standards, but applies across the board. Um, any any other disclaimer we should give about that? That's a good point. And honestly, even for those who aren't in a relationship at the moment, you can still have a libido and a sex drive, and that's a healthy thing. And, you know, those those urges can be addressed solo as well. And I think that's important to address. So, yeah, you know, if we end up talking about um, biological men or biological women at points, certainly there's that we're not trying to exclude anybody else that, um, you know, may have issues with libido. I think our clinic's really great about making sure we're very inclusive and mindful of each individual. So, um, yeah, that was a really great point to make. And, and also that, that sex and the libido are important parts of health. And so if you have a low libido, if you're having any kind of dysfunction with your interest in sex, that's a sign that something's going on in your body. Like you said, hormones, um, you know, body image issues. It's a very intimate relationship with your body, and it can also be with a partner. And so addressing that, you know, is going to address other issues most likely as well. 
I know we're going to mostly dive into the physical aspects of this today, but obviously there's a lot of emotional and mental pieces to it too, and they overlap a lot, so I know that'll come up. Um, one thing that we, we definitely see is over time, sex drive is going to change with age. Um, do we want to touch on that at all? Yeah, so yeah, sex, sexual dysfunction can occur at any age. You know, we just listed all the things that could really contribute to how people manifest their sexuality. So any age we could have a nutritional deficiency, any age we could be stressed, any age a health issue might come up. Um, but we definitely need to support sexual wellness as we change throughout life as well. Um, and not to mention as we age, our roles could change. So we go from being a young adult, maybe single, um, and then we might go into like like marriage and then transition into like pregnancy and postpartum and perimenopause and postmenopause. And so our, our bodies do change throughout all those different permutations. So it's definitely important to address anything that might come up as related to those specific times in life. Um, one in three perimenopausal women will experience painful sex. 52% uh, of men between 40 to 70 years old uh, experience mild to moderate erectile dysfunction. Um, so there's a lot of aspects to that yeah. as well. With, with men, a lot of emphasis is put on hormones like testosterone. And there's there's definitely a degree of, of truth to that. There's, you know, testosterone decreases in your starting in your mid-30s. I don't want to focus only on that, but but that's something that does come up in the conversation, which we'll definitely talk about. Uh, testosterone gets focused on a lot with men, but estrogen is also important too. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that as well. It's about having a good balance. And I think there's a lot of emphasis on the differences between males and females. But honestly, I always try to approach patients kind of universally. Uh, I look at a patient and go, well, what are the universals here? And that's just about finding that balance. Um, so... I don't always separate it. Oh, I'm treating the libido of, say, a man or a woman. It's let's get all these other things in place and in check and in balance and go from there because there are many of the same factors. Absolutely. Um, and, and with that, you know, there's um, there's a decrease in sex drive, and that can happen to, to biological men or biological women. Um, so do we see, we see that pretty commonly, you know, across the board. Yes, for sure. Um, not to bore you with statistics, but they're pretty important. I think it puts things in perspective, you know. So you, in the United States, approximately like 40% of females have sexual concerns of any type. So that could be pretty broad. And 12% report like pretty distressing uh, sexual problems. Uh, and then for males, reduced libido is like 5 to 10%. But one third of men experience inability to achieve or maintain an erection um, sufficient for a satisfactory sexual experience. So like, that's, that's pretty big, like one in three men, um, you know, experiencing some issue with function. We don't really think that way, you know, I feel as a society as much. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think then, you know, people experience it and they think it's normal. Mm -hmm. And so they don't address it with their physician. And that, that is a problem because there's something going on there. And it, it may be partner driven. And, and that still should be something that you are addressing. You know, there's a lot of great therapists out there. And there's a lot of little tips and tricks to like, you know, keep marriages exciting and that type of thing as well. So like there's, there's ways to address that so it doesn't become a bigger issue. And different people have different reactions to it. Some people are hesitant and reticent. Some people, you know, come in guns blazing. That's the first thing they want to talk about. It's interesting to see how different patients react differently to it. 
But in general, I do see maybe um, some males might be a little more, you know, cautious about bringing it up. You know, they might they might leave it to the end of the visit sometimes, or um, get almost bashful. Or I think there's there's shame and guilt around it, which. If anything, if we could dispel that, I think that would be a great, huge first step. Because it's so funny to me, like it's it's one of the biggest, you know, driving factors in our lives is it, procreating and sexual health as a sign of vitality. Yet for so many of us, it's a topic of shame or guilt, or we don't talk about it. It's entirely normal. It's very, it's perhaps the most normal thing, you know, that, that eating, breathing, they're the pretty core staples of, of healthy functioning uh, life, so... Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's, you know, one thing I see is it's having that relationship with the clinician so they can feel safe around it. And, and you know, one of the best ways to take power over something that you're feeling shame about is just to call it and say, this is happening. I want to change it. Here's how I do it. That's how you take your power back in a situation. And so like, this isn't what I want for myself. I want to have more interest. I want to have less pain or whatever the goals are around your sexual health. Just addressing it head on is the best way to kind of take it on. It's interesting. A lot of it, I think, is around intimacy. It's intimacy with your partner and it's intimacy with your own body and then allowing for like having space in your life for intimacy, you know? And so that's such a key thing and so because it's like you know our underbellies literally you know like we it's hard to show that to somebody so having a clinician on board really helps you kind of go okay this is normal I can figure this out and there's some answers to this and some of them are most likely biological so you know we let's talk about some of the like the underlying why sex hormones do like sexual drive decreases yeah, so um, I think it's like a lot, like we just mentioned, a lot more complex than hormones alone. Like, I think when you're reflecting on your sex life, it's important to sit back and be like, what is making me pump the brakes on this? Like, am I like so tired? Am I in like so much pain? Uh, are we not keeping spark alive by, you know, trying to cultivate that intimacy on a whole level? Like, are, are we not diving in? Are we sticking our heads in the sand about this a little bit? We don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, so it's like, really, what is what is making you pump your brakes? Like when your partner leans in for a kiss or your partner is caressing your back and you kind of think in your head, this is, they're trying to like have sex. And so you shy away from it. Like what makes you take a pause? Yeah. And so mm -hmm. that's a great um, thing to bring up because I see that happen. And then that really kills intimacy so what happens is someone's affectionate you don't want to lead them on thinking like look I'm, I don't feel great tonight I don't feel like having sex and so then you shut it down there and so couples become less and less intimate because they don't want to have sex necessarily but they then they lose that intimacy and it becomes a snowball so one thing I learned from a therapist who is a patient um, that she recommends for her clients all the time is um uh, taking two uh, playing cards, um, you can have two kings, two queens, or a king and a queen, or you could pick two jokers if you want. However, as long as you can tell them apart. <laughs> and face up, I'm interested in sex. Face down, I'm not. And you just leave them on the bedside, or you leave them on the kitchen table, wherever you want to put them. And then, I mean... Often the kings will be face up. We can talk about that in a bit. But uh, <laughs> the, the, so that way you can be intimate and be like, look, I want to cuddle. I want to make out. I don't want to have sex right now. And it's a great way to maintain intimacy in a relationship without 
having to always have like maintain that sex drive that one partner may have a different level than the other. So it makes me think of, um, you know, we're talking about intimacy, which is really important. We were, Mary and I, in preparing for this, we were talking a lot and the topic of kissing for kissing sake came up, meaning it doesn't always have to lead to sex, but you do it to just keep the intimacy alive. But then we also start talking about how, you know, sometimes I think maybe people are, they feel that intimacy, sex always has to just kind of be this spontaneous thing that just comes up spontaneously. You can, oftentimes, desire might not necessarily be there, but you can do the physical things to physically arouse the body, then the desire might follow. Like you can, you can trigger or, or uh, stimulate a physical arousal, which then can turn on the, 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 that more of that mental desire. You don't have to necessarily always wait around for the mental desire to occur, because you might end up waiting a long time. Um, but yeah, just keeping that intimacy alive, um, but having it not always have to lead to sex. Right. And I think especially in the context of a long-term like monogamous relationship, there's all kinds of relationship. I respect them all. But <laughs> like if we're talking about like a long-term monogamous relationship, like things could get the same, you know what I mean? And sometimes that could slow down the desires, the Things are not as spontaneous as they used to be in the beginning. And I think that's something that people really struggle with. So like Anthony said, it's important to like just know that, okay, we all feel better when we just have sex. So you might just need to think about it, schedule it, like make time to touch and, and, and interact in that way. And if you're not feeling it, start to just like, like Dr. Young said, uh, get in tune with perhaps why not? What's going on? Are you feeling really stressed? Are you feeling really tired? Is there some underlying depression? Are you feeling burnt out? Are you feeling overworked? Are you overtraining? Are you undertraining? Are you not exercising enough? Are there other aspects of health that might be getting in your way? And these are all things that your doctor can help you with. So it's definitely worth bringing up because they can help guide you and identify what maybe they can spot, but is eluding you. Yeah, they might be able to really hone in really quickly and say, okay, yeah, there's nothing to worry about here. This is something that we can work on and is actionable. Yeah. There's a lot of areas for the, uh, improvement. Uh, yeah. And so I will also say, like, we'll see a lot of, like, men who are undertrained, overtrained, dehydrated, imbalances galore. And still, if they were able to have sex, they're like, yeah, we're good. I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> so <laughs> there is a gap that we need to call that biological men definitely have across the board, like generalizing a higher sex drive than biological women. So why do men tend to have a higher sex drive than women? No, I, I just think this is, you know, I keep saying it's a complex issue, but because it's like societal, cultural, there's so many things. Like think about when we were first taught about sex. Maybe our parents were sitting us down and talking to us about how it goes down. But maybe we like got exposed to it by watching a video in middle school, you know? So, but what it comes back down to is like, there is kind of even like an orgasm gap between men and women. Um, and that goes down to like really learning the anatomy of, uh, and like being attuned to our sexual organs. And I don't feel like that's anything we're ever taught. We're not even taught about like our cycles as um, uh, people who are, um, have ovaries or uterus. We're not talk about, we're, we don't, we're not taught about that and how even our sexualities could fluctuate with our cycles every month. You know what I mean? So, um, I think part of it is just like learning our bodies also. Um, and 
just having those resources around us to know what is going on with our bodies and how to pleasure ourselves, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being in tune with your partner. I mean, as, as, a, as a male, I could say it, it, it's good for me to even, you know, have learned about the, the uh, menstrual cycle and, and anatomy. Like, it definitely clued me in more about, like, okay, this is what my partner experiences and, and you know, that I don't necessarily inherently relate to, but it's good for me to keep that all in mind and, and to know that so that, you know, we could be more in sync and in tune with one another. So, yeah. There, there's a proposed explanation that, you know, a lot of it does come back around to testosterone. It is observable that in general, men have approximately 40 times more testosterone than women. That's often attributed as the cause. I don't know that it's necessarily concrete and conclusive, but that, that's the big one that a lot of people will point to. Other things I've seen proposed, which are sort of interesting thought experiments, I don't know how much I necessarily agree with it, but I could see something to this. There's like an evolutionary biology uh, perspective on this, where it was about men carrying on their genes, about genetics carrying on through variety. Um, so those are some of the proposed mechanisms, but... Um, I'm curious if if anyone has any thoughts on that. I mean, that's an interesting thought that, like, you know, there's that one comedian that's got, like, 10 or 11 babies, right? And, like, he didn't have to carry those babies for 9, 10 months. He's not breastfeeding them, right? Like, so there is that, like, evolutionary, it does make sense from that perspective, I guess. So I, I hear that for sure. And, I mean, they use testosterone as a, a therapy for some women for libido and also for um, men, and, and it works. So testosterone, I mean... It builds muscle. It does a lot of things. It makes you more assertive, right? <laughs> if you overshoot it, they're aggressive, you know. So, um, I, testosterone plays a huge role in that piece of things for libido. And women do have testosterone. I think that's a myth that people don't mm-hmm. realize. And the balance of all your sex hormones is um, a very intricate dance. And so, we have more of other hormones, and we're going to prioritize those other hormones a lot of times. And the same backbone that makes all these sex hormones also makes your stress hormones. Right, right. I, I love what you just said about, yeah, women also not only have, but need testosterone and vice versa. Men have and need estrogen. There's a lot of talk online or even, you know, when I was working my way through naturopathic medical school, I, I worked in a health food store and a lot of young men would come in and it would ask for things that A, boosted their testosterone, but B, lower their estrogen not a great idea first of all work with a doctor make sure you're doing the appropriate thing but if you crush your estrogen you're going to crush your libido it's actually very important for libido for guys so that's one myth i hope to definitely dispel is that estrogen not good for men untrue it's needed especially for a libido testosterone helpful for men and women uh, across the board so i think those are some myths that that get thrown out there that it's all about the balance. Guys, this has been really fun chatting about all of this and kind of busting myths and like, you know what, just rolling up our sleeves and talking about a conversation that makes a lot of people a little uncomfortable. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to dive into uh, more sex talk. If you're a fan of this show, you'll know we talk a lot about conventional and naturopathic medicine and how they can play a role in your overall health. We call this collaborative medicine, and through the work we do at Collaborative Natural Health Partners, we're able to give people the knowledge and tools they need to feel great every single day. If you're interested in learning more, head over to our website, ctnaturalhealth.com, where you'll find articles, courses, and a bunch of resources to take the guesswork out of your health. 
Don't wait for your next checkup. The doctor will see you now. Welcome back to Your Health Toolkit. I'm Dr. Lauren Young here with Dr. Anthony Pascucci and Dr. Mary Tracy chatting about all things sex drive. Um, And one thing we alluded to before that I want to circle back on is that a sex drive is a normal, healthy thing. A a decreased sex drive happens to a lot of us, but it could be a sign of something else going on. And so what kind of things do you think of and look for when we're doing an assessment of somebody and thinking what's going on, their sex drive is down? Sure. So I think one of the things that um, we want to do, again, we want to evaluate what's going on in the person's life, because if they're experiencing like a chronic stress, and if we're in this sympathetic flight or fight, save the world mode, the last thing we're going to want to think about is like having sex, right? And so I think that's really important, even when it comes to function of the sexual organs. Yeah, I mean, function, good point. Functioning of, of sex drive and sex function is very intimately related to the nervous system. Not to get too in the weeds about it, but I'll just kind of point out, we have what's called the autonomic or automatic phase of the nervous system. That controls a lot of things we don't have to think about. The sex function is largely controlled by the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic, your your fight, flight, freeze, fawn uh, branch of the nervous system. You can think about it as arousal. And then you have your parasympathetic, your rest, digest, feed, and breed, which is actually more responsible for orgasm. So it's it's a real seesaw. It's a real balance of those two phases. You do need some amount of arousal, uh, that's to say of good, healthy stress, what we call eustress, to get aroused. Uh, you need a balance with relaxation to then ejaculate. So it's really interesting to me that, that seesaw effect where you need just the right amount of stress response. You don't want to be overly stressed in that fight or flight dominance, but you don't want to completely lack arousal either. And then uh, for the second half of the phase, the orgasm, you have to also be able to resolve that that stress with relaxation, calming, uh, bring a resolve to that. So when people are in chronic stress, you can often have that fight or flight dominance. When people are depressed, you can have lack of arousal, you can have fatigue, low mood. Um, So kind of figuring out where a person is in the scheme of things. It's one thing to say stress, but what kind of stress are you experiencing? The kind where you're wired, the kind where you're always tired, the kind where you're burnt out. So um, those are definitely things I look at. Yeah, and then for women too, like um, the one thing that we can think about, I talked about earlier a little bit was like the menstrual cycle, right? Um, a lot of times during, uh, if you're still ovulating, during that ovulatory time period, we tend to have an increased libido. So if stress is coming in as a piece and cortisol is firing and estrogen and testosterone are not being produced as they usually would, then of course our, our sexual function is going to be affected as well. I mean, even during the pandemic, people's periods were all over the place, right? So like people were delaying their cycles essentially because of stress, right? Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense that you shouldn't want to procreate when you're stressed out, right? Um, And they've actually shown, like, when your hormones are off or your cortisol is up, you actually shunt your uh, neurotransmitters to make less serotonin as well. And so that makes sense as well, right? Again, you don't want to be happy and relaxed when you're stressed. You have to address the stressor. But if that stressor is chronic, there's nowhere to go with it. I love what you were talking about with, like, the fact that it's, like, this 
there's a, uh, you need to have the high of having energy and interest and then be able to then drop down into a deep relaxation. There's this, there's this pattern throughout our bodies where there's like the high and then the low and then that creates a reset. And really knowing that like sex should be a reset for your body, hitting that sympathetic and then parasympathetic. So you kind of get it all there. There was a, a mnemonic that one of our great anatomy teachers in school taught us that I'll never forget. The mnemonic was point and shoot. So this refers to male erection and ejaculation, but it's really memorable. It helped me on boards a lot, and I still talk about it to this day. Mary and I say it to each other often. Point P standing for parasympathetic. Point as in erection. You need that phase of the nervous system for erection. And then uh, shoot, sympathetic, you need that for ejaculation. In fact, I think I said that backwards before. But um, yeah, point and shoot, you need that that restful phase to become, uh, to, to get in an aroused state. You're comfortable enough to get aroused, but then you're, you have a, a, a good enough stress response and arousal system to then uh, complete ejaculation. And, you know, those little nuances are the things you talk about with your doctor because, like, uh, some men can have an erection but can't sustain it or can't have it, an ejaculation. And so... It's a matter of looking at those little nuances with someone like sexual dysfunction is a kind of an awkward term, but it really like if you're finding that there's something that's not working for your sex life, it could be a myriad of things and these little nuances can help us kind of hone down on what we need to work on. Exactly. It's very nuanced. Uh, male patients will often say, you know, they'll, they'll talk about it as if it's one blanket thing, uh, sex drive. Well, what aspect? Is it trouble getting an erection? Trouble maintaining an erection? Trouble ejaculating? Is it more so before any of that, just lacking the desire? Where along the way exactly are we talking yeah, and then, um, yeah, so these are good questions um, to kind of really dive into. And for even on the woman's side of thing, like, uh, are you having an orgasm? Do you have enough lubrication? Are you having pain with intercourse? All these things can really affect, um, you know, sexual function, essentially. A mm -hmm. question I'll, I'll ask uh, my male patients when they're, when they're saying they have trouble with ejaculation or erection. One thing I'll just start to ask is, do you ever wake up with a morning erection? Are, 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 and often they'll say yes. So it's like, okay, you can have an erection. We need to just figure out what's going on that you're not able to perhaps have it when you want to. And that comes back to, again, are you putting a lot of pressure on yourself with expectations? But identifying, can you have an erection? Often the answer is yes. So then you start to dig into, okay, what else is going on? Which I know the question was, what are some other health issues? We were talking a lot about stress, but some of the other things I think of that can affect sexual health that relate to overall health, uh, you know, is there anything going on metabolically, you know, your cardiovascular system, diabetes, which can result in circulatory issues or neuropathy, because you need your nerves, you need your arteries and veins to be working well, because all those things... Uh, contribute to sexual function as well? Are you taking in a lot of oxidative uh, things like smoking, drinking, diet, inflammatory diet full of uh, oxidants, things like that? Uh, are you deficient in any nutrients? Right. Yeah. All of our neurotransmitters, our hormones require building blocks from how we fuel ourselves. So that could be amino acids or proteins, fats. And that's why the, the talk about nutrition is really important. Like, how are you fueling yourself throughout the 
the day even could affect how you experience your um, sexual life. So yeah. we, we've been talking a lot about you know the the mental health aspect of it, the stress. Dr. Young alluded a couple times to neurotransmitters, but yeah, like Dr. Tracy just said. Those are coming, those building blocks are coming from diet. So we need to make sure those are in place. We talked a lot about hormones and that's very important, but neurotransmitters are the other big component because they're like in concert with the hormones. Things like dopamine, like serotonin, we build those off of nutrients. So not only focusing on the hormones, but definitely those key nutrients, often protein, the amino acids. But are we in a calorie deficit? Are we in a fat deficit because we're on some sort of diet? Maybe we're lacking in some of those areas. I mean, and a lot of this will show up in um, having a lower libido. It also will show up in other hormone imbalances that we'll see. And again, it's very normalized in society to have period cramps. It's very normalized um, to like um, have men have lower testosterone. And it's like, oh, you're getting older. That's just how things are. Um, you know, it's the solution for most um OBGYNs, when they when you have an issue like period cramps, endometriosis, that kind of stuff is like birth control, which oddly enough, the side effect is oh, a little libido. <laughs> little libido. Um, so, so I think really, uh, you know, looking at hormones and knowing how important they are for um, and how sensitive they are to stress in our environment and our diet and those things. Yeah, no, definitely. And um Dr. Prescucci talked earlier about the blood flow, and oftentimes we think blood flow to the reproductive organs. Usually we link it with men, right? But our clitoris is very, very sensitive to the blood flow. And things like deficiency of estrogen or deficiency of testosterone could lead to those tissues being very painful, dry, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it's very, it's all tied together. It's, it's, we're not that different. <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always try to treat the, the, the patient in front of me as, a, as just a human, as a person, not necessarily thinking, oh, male, female, because it's a lot of the same things. There's a lot of universalities to it. So. Right. 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 Um, you know, both uh, men and women have the tripod of hormones, right? You're, you've got your adrenals, you've got your thyroid and your sex hormones. And if any leg on that tripod is off, it's going to be wobbly and could definitely show up as low libido as one of the symptoms for sure. Then there may be some other things going on as well. So I think that's definitely something to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned thyroid. We talked. We mentioned diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Another one I'll just briefly mention, sleep apnea could be a, a, a big problem for a lot of things, but can contribute to low libido. If you're not sleeping, getting a good restorative sleep, if you're lacking oxygen, that's going to affect cardiovascular and metabolic health. It's going to affect hormones as well. It's going to be spiking your cortisol. As we talked about, cortisol, that adrenal leg, that stool, big piece of it because that could be siphoning away from your, your sex hormones. And I think, so sleep apnea, for those who aren't familiar, is just at night, um, you stop breathing as well. And there's different types of sleep apnea. Typically, it's evaluated by doing a study where they put a little camera on you at night and uh, watch you all night, or they put some electrodes on you and watch your breathing and watch your heart rate. Um, and so it can look almost like snoring. Um, it can also be just stopping breathing for any amount of time. Very stressful for your heart, very stressful for your, uh, your endocrine system. And so it'll present as the classic like adrenal fatigue. And I think one of the biggest myths I've seen with sleep apnea is that people expect that they have to be overweight because that's right. physicians do it too. I'll right. have you know like we should look at, into sleep apnea for you and they're like oh my doctor said I was 
I, I mean, I'm not a candidate for that. Right. I, I find that's actually a much lower cause than than is propagated. Um, it has less to do with that often about how you're breathing, things like that, your airway, which I, I see why people could pin that to weight. But no, I, I very often see that it is not the cause. So yeah, great point. I think yeah. that's a big myth. And then, you know, one that we had talked about was medications are oftentimes um, contributing factors to libido. And these medications are extremely important. And so there's ways to work around the fact that your libido may be decreased because of those. So the biggest offender, Dr. Tracy and I just alluded to birth control, right? right? We see that in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, other ones that you can think of? Well, certainly things like things that are going to affect your neurotransmitters. So you have your antidepressants. A lot of the common classes would be what you call your SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It's affecting serotonin. You have ones that affect norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine. So again, neurotransmitters. Uh, These often have effects on libidos, on, on your libido. Um, but then I also try to think about thing other medications that, that might affect neurotransmitters. I even try to be mindful of Adderall as it's being used more often, which tends to really stimulate our sympathetic nervous system. So I just try to be mindful of that with patients too. Is that perhaps putting them into a little bit more of a, a sympathetic overdrive? Um, but yeah, any, any medications that affect uh, neurotransmitters, certainly I'm thinking about. So speaking about medication, um, one that gets a lot of conversation around this topic is Viagra, which has been out for 25 years now, so it's pretty normal in medicine. Um, but, you know, that's not even our, like, 10th go-to when it comes to libido. So I, I, I want to talk about what, what things and supplements people would want to put on their radar when it comes to libido. Sure. Um, one thing that comes to mind for me, and since you mentioned Viagra, couple of nutrients that that will actually work on the same pathway in the body. That's to say, increasing blood flow and circulation, which we've talked about a few times. One of my favorite things, it's actually two amino acids. I, I like the combination of, of L-arginine with L-citrulline. They're kind of closely related. They both increase nitric oxide in the body. Nitric oxide relaxes and dilates the, the blood vessels, allowing for more blood flow acting a lot like Viagra, but, but, but very natural, largely safe. I'll, I'll throw out the caveat. Might want to just be mindful, talk to your doctor. If you have herpes simplex virus, there's a little bit of a connection there. Uh, not that it can bring out herpes uh, outbreaks, but it, it has to do with lysine. Um, just be something to be mindful, have on your radar and talk to your doctor about. Uh, beets, a nutritional source that, that uh, increase nitric oxide. So those are some things that come to mind. Yeah, blood flow we talked about is so important for sex organs and honestly the rest of your body too. So that's those are great supplements that are my favorites too. So, Dr. Tracy, I know you're you're um, trained in holistic pelvic care and done a lot with pelvic floor PT. And so, um, you know, let's talk about your experience with like local support for vaginas and pelvic floors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think <laughs> it sounds terrible. A lot of them will go to like their gynecologist, whatever, and they'll be like, "Well, if you don't." use it, you'll lose it. And that has more to do with the blood flow to the area, to those sexual organs. And so it's very important to like be mindful of the vaginal tissue and the vulvar tissue. And there's a lot of things, whether it's like vitamin E, um, vaginal DHEA, and there's a myriad of different vaginal moisturizers. And some women even go towards the vaginal hormone therapies that are more and more being proven to be pretty safe. So there's like a lot of, there's a lot of options. And not to mention pelvic floor PTs also 
a good option for both males and females just because the pelvic muscles play a big part, again, in blood flow. Um, we're talking a lot, a lot about that. So um, there's definitely lots of physical medicines that could be very helpful, including holistic pelvic care, addressing history, trauma, all those things that might be uh, impactful when it comes to sexual function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pelvic floor is like uh, all the rage in physical therapy right now. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, when hearing in Europe that like after women have a baby, oftentimes they'll be just prescribed, um, you know, to do pelvic floor PT to help everything recover after a vaginal or even or a C-section, like you're just carrying a, you know, watermelon in your abdomen for a while, helping that pelvic floor, those, those muscles that basically make you a, a little like, you know, um, bowl the whole up your whole body. We're all sitting way too much and we, um, don't connect with our bodies in that way. So pelvic floor PT is pretty amazing. And the, the pelvic care that you guys, that you're from doing too, mm -hmm. to address all those underlying issues. I think um, it's important for men as well. Uh, yes. Same, you know, the same, that muscular bowl uh, in, in, the, in the pelvic floor, bringing blood flow to that area, just as important for, for males too. So don't shy away from it, men, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, um, so I had a case in, in school and um, the person was on Viagra and they, that they could have an erection as long as they were on that, but they wanted to get off of it. And that was, and it ended up being pelvic floor dysfunction. And when we address those muscles and like, basically you could walk around and be very dysfunctional still in your pelvic floor. And so getting the muscles to relax allowed, um, you know, the blood flow to happen better and they were able to come off of their medication, which was really cool. And good pelvic floor PT is going to just connect you more with your body. You're going to yeah. feel in tune with it more, which I think is real important. So. so there's all these supplements over the counter that like are going to claim to help libido. Some of them have research uh, behind them. And sometimes if there's no other underlying causes, a little bit of like maca root can like go a long way. Um, or, you know, tribulus, those type of things do have some research behind them. But again, if you're like low in dopamine or zinc or you have pelvic floor dysfunction, I'm not sure like doing some maca root's going to do it for you. But that being say, said, like I, I see them work pretty well when there are no other causes to be a, a mindful of. So one other thing I want to close out with is just how to help facilitate patients talking about this with their doctors. Um, you know, one myth I'd like to dispel is that as a female, I can't talk about erectile dysfunction or ejaculation with um, people who have penises. Like, I'm, I'm comfortable with talking about that, and it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I'm comfortable with talking about any type of sex that the person is engaging in, and it's not something I personally have an issue, like... I don't, I don't feel any shame or discomfort or talking about the issue. Most doctors don't. We like medicine and we want to help the person get better. So that's my big thing is just wanting to make sure people understand they need to have these conversations with their doctors. I feel the same way. I, I love talking to, to women about the, they often, I see the look of, of surprise when I, when I start talking to them about their cycle and I always want, I don't ever want to mansplain, but it can't, it I always, you know, take it real seriously, our, 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 our principle of doctor as teacher. And I feel if a, if a doctor can, can teach and get you to understand, that's really empowering for people. So just feeling like you're connecting with a doctor who can teach you about your body so that you are able uh, to connect with your own body more and understand it more. Right. And oftentimes when the, maybe if the doctor doesn't feel equipped, they could 
refer you to a sex therapist or a pelvic floor physical therapist. And there's actually a lot of um, like societies, uh, maybe we could link it in the show notes, to like menopause.org or Ishwish or all these kind of, you know, societies that are made to focus on this. So for sure, for sure. So I, I guess like, you know, the key is, is that bring it up. We're all well equipped. If anything, if we're the uh, a different gender than the patient, we've done a little more legwork and making sure we understand the experience of w- because we want to make sure we support patients. So, um, thank you so much, guys, for taking the time to talk about this. I'm really proud of us. Yeah. This was <laughs> we did it. <laughs> and thanks for listening, everybody. Um, this is your health toolkit, and look forward to connecting with you next time. <laughs>